Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. And welcome to the Rising Stars Show. I'm Miriam Knight, and we have some terrific guests today, each with a different and insightful piece of the puzzle of who we are and all we can become. I trust you'll find a lot of food for thought and leave just a little more inspired. Our first guests today are Julie Miller and Brian Bedford. Now, after successful careers in human resources, Julie, a native Texan, and Brian, born in Scotland, co-founded Miller Bedford Executive Solutions, an international consulting firm addressing organizational issues with specific emphasis on strategy, culture, and leadership. In addition to the United States and Canada, Julie and Brian have worked extensively around the world, from China to Europe to South Africa and even Israel. Julie and Brian are co-authors of a new book called Culture Without Accountability, WTF, What's the Fix?, which describes their passion for an accountability-based culture and a proven process for instilling it in businesses and in everyday life as a platform for success. Brian and Julie, welcome. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. We are indeed. (laughs) Well, I really uh, was so impressed because culture without accountability sounds like the state of much of the world around us. So what is your hope in writing this book? Well, I think one of the things that kind of launched us in that direction is we kept seeing the lack of accountability everywhere around us. Sports stars, business leaders, parents and families, politicians, um, and it really didn't seem the way that we were raised and we didn't really like what we were seeing. We coupled that with when we worked with businesses to install a, a culture of um, that would help them be more successful at what they were trying to accomplish. We realized accountability was a huge thing that businesses wanted to make sure they had. In fact, what we realized is that really successful businesses are accountable. Now, how does accountability differ from finding out who to blame? Well, I think the the whole point about accountability is is to to make sure that people understand what their commitments are, and then behave honorably towards those commitments. People often get confused, I think, between resp- responsibility and accountability, and we think responsibility is kind of at the front end. And accountability is at the at the back end. You let's take a, a sales guy for example. He he is responsible for sales in a particular area, so that's the the, the upfront responsibility. But he is accountable to delivering 
whatever his quota is to to the business. So it's it's front end, back end, and it's we we try to get away from a culture of blame because we we, we don't think it's about blame. It's it's trying to make sure that we create the environment where people are influenced to do the right thing <clears throat> excuse me at the at the beginning as opposed to have to be blamed for doing something wrong i would have thought that blame um actually is uh counterproductive and causes people to um you know retract and and avoid making uh stepping out and making suggestions that might get them uh, in trouble down the line if they don't pan out. So getting getting a switch in the mindset away from blame, I think, is is equally important. And I, I would agree with that. And I would say I I think what we like to talk about is having a a common agreement at the beginning. So if I, for example, am a supervisor and I'm expecting some results from an employee that works for me or a parent expecting some results from my child, then there has to be a clear understanding up front of what's expected, not just the results that need to be there, but the behavior I expect for that person to, to, um, to own as a part of that, that work that needs to be done. Without that common agreement, it's real easy for people to look for people to blame because I, as a supervisor, probably didn't do a very good job at the upfront or as a parent of explaining what it was that my expectations were. So I'm trying to pass the buck as well because I didn't do my job right. Right. <laughs> what we try to, to establish in the, in the accountability-based culture that we were, we we're talking about is when something goes wrong, rather than look for somebody to blame and point the finger. What we try to teach is figure out what went wrong, why it went wrong, and then fix it so that it doesn't happen again. And that's, that's a very different mindset to who, who can we line up against the wall and shoot because this thing has gone wrong. Exactly. It's really taking blame out of the equation and looking for problems and solutions. Absolutely. The other aspect that I came across in my corporate work was the poor person who had a lot of responsibility but no power to change it. So, um, you know, they were just kind of at the receiving end of management policies and had to make do even with flawed policies. So what you're talking about now is overhauling the entire structure, the entire corporate or business or organizational structure to make it more kind of flat instead of pyramidal. Is that a clear understanding? Or Yeah, I, I, I think what we try, what we try to focus on is that the, the strategy of the business is the start point. De define the strategy and make sure that people have a clear understanding of where, where the ship is going and uh, what are the things that have to be done to make sure that it gets safely or appropriately to its, to its destination. And 
then everybody is clear as to what their roles and responsibilities are within that. But, you, I mean, you're absolutely right, Miriam. It's soul-destroying to be in an organization where you can see what's going wrong, but you have absolutely no power whatsoever to, uh, to make an impact on it. Now, you said define the strategy of the business, and in modern uh, corporations, the strategy almost begins and ends with increasing profits. Do you um, advocate for a broader view of a business strategy that includes what I would call the more humanistic values? Yeah, I, I, I think... A profit obviously is important, uh, but you, you 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 won't survive for any length of time as a business if you don't make any money. But it's it, it, it's what are the the critical elements of the of the strategy that will allow you to make the money you need. One of the things that we teach in our consulting business is the the, the preparation of what we call a one page strategy document. And it's a, it's a very useful thing to do because you get all of the uh, critical information about the business on one page. You start off with what is the mission of the business? Why does this business exist? What, what are we trying to do? Uh, then we talk about the, uh, the major longer term, let's say one to three year objectives. What are, what are the things we have to do? And making making profits obviously may well be be one of those things, but the profits are derived from the strategic direction of the business, the things that you you commit to do, whether it's uh, improving the cycle time of your manufacturing process, or in, improving your inventory turns, or reducing your cost structure, or what, what, customer service if you're in that kind of industry, right? Whatever those things might be. So you, you have a collection of hopefully no more than three to five critical longer-term um, objectives and then a collection of shorter-term objectives that we all commit to do over the next six to 12 months with names and dates and so uh, specific action items uh, so that we, we can start the ball rolling towards the the major objectives and measure our progress. And that one, another thing that we t we talk about a lot is is alignment, making sure that all the efforts of the the business and the employees are aligned in the same direction. And the, the one page strategy can make sure that everybody's on the same page and is is pulling in the same direction. Now, how does this strategy differ from culture? Well, if, let, let's talk about the, the definition of culture, first of all. Um, the, we, the, the kind of dictionary definition of, of culture is the behaviors and actions of and beliefs of a particular group at a particular time. That's what you will find in the, in the dictionary or something like that. Uh, we prefer to do it in a shorthand way, and we say it's it's the way we do things around here. So as part of the one-page strategy document, there is a section that talks about values and behaviors. 
And it's, it's the way that you create the, the atmosphere, the culture in the, in the business that supports the strategic direction. You know, for example, if you're running a, a, a medical operation, a hospital, uh, you wouldn't necessarily have the same values and behaviors that you would emphasize. Right. If- uh, Brian, we're going to have to take a quick break. We're speaking with Julie Miller and Brian Bedford about culture without accountability. Stay with us and we'll be back shortly. Free your mind with Ohm Times Radio, IOM FM. Hello, I'm Miriam Knight of New Consciousness Review, inviting you to my new show where I interview the rising stars of the Conscious Awakening. We'll explore the many faces of consciousness and action and intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Rising Stars Show. Host your show on IOM FM, the radio network of Ohm Times Media, one of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community, and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of Ohm Times. Hosting a show on IOM FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. Simone Millicis would like you to know that business can be fun, which is why she wrote the book, Joy of Business. What if you could have the joy of business rather than the stress and struggle? Most of the time, the only thing stopping you from a thriving business is you. In the Joy of Business book, Simone gives you access consciousness tools and pragmatic ways to get out of your own way and to create the business, life, and living you know is possible and beyond what this reality says is achievable. Business is joy. It's creation. It's generative. It can be the adventure of living. You can purchase your copy of the book through Amazon or Joy of Business website, www.accessjoyofbusiness.com. Hi, this is Angela Levesque, host of Entanglement Radio. Join me Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern for inspiring conversations with visionaries in spiritual science and conscious healing. Entanglement Radio, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern. Transcendent talk for the conscious mind. The cutting edge of conscious radio. Ohm Times Radio. IOM FM. And we are back with Julie Miller and Brian Bedford talking about culture without accountability. Guys, what is your website before we go on? www.millerbedford.com Just one word? Yes, it is. Millerbedford.com. Great. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the instilling culture in, uh, or, or the culture of an organization. And uh, obviously, this can be any kind of organization from from the family all the way up to uh, uh, governments and, and industry. And um, I was thinking about the organization, uh, the, the culture of Google, for example, that has been uh, spread across all kinds of magazines and journals where they have uh, terrific, um, you know, creches for the children and playrooms and everything. They really want to instill a culture of fun and creativity. And that seems to also make everybody want to take the initiative 
give as much as they can. So creating that culture of we're all in it together and we all benefit together. Whereas when you look at some of the exaggerated um, salaries of top executives and how the people at the bottom are treated pretty shoddily. Um, that has to be reflected in the attitude of the people. How do you actually get management to buy into shifting the culture throughout the organization? Well, I think it's back to the alignment thing that Brian was talking about. Culture is not something that should be done just because it's a good thing to do. It really needs to be something that aligns to the strategy of your business to help your business be successful. Google, there's no doubt, has a very um, great culture that contributes to the success of their business. But other people could try to install Google's culture and their business could fail because that's not really the model that they're, they're based on. They need something that might be, you know, if, if the military, for example, had Google's um, culture, we'd be in trouble probably because there needs to be that chain of command. It there. boggles the mind, actually. <laughs> exactly. So and I think that's kind of what we're about as we work with culture with an organization is what do you need to be successful as an organization? And that's why so many people come back to that whole accountability concept that, um, and I mean, part of what we talk about with accountable accountability is a personal willingness after the fact to answer for the results and, and the behaviors of your actions. So, that's kind of how we define accountability. And what's important in that regard is individuals need to be accountable to themselves. And then if I'm not accountable to myself in a business organization, I would imagine my supervisor is going to point that out to me. And same in a family. I mean, that's kind of the parental supervisory role in a family to help make that child understand accountability and learn what they need to know so that as they grow up, they will have that personal willingness to, to answer for the results of their behaviors and actions. One really uh, vital point, I think, about, about culture is that it, it's defined not by words, but by actions. We, we have four words that we, we use, which we think are really critically important. It's as above, so below. And what that means very simply is that, that people in a, 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 doesn't matter whether it's a family or a business or a church or sports team or whatever, it, they, the people in the, in the group watch the behavior of the leader and then follow the leader. So if the leader says one thing and does another, then the culture isn't going to last for much, very long because people will very quickly realize that the words aren't important. It's, it's what you can get away with that's, that's the really important thing. So, you know, we talk about the, the one-page strategy and the need to have the definition of the required culture on the one page, but it's the behavior of the leaders, really, in support of, of that culture or support of those values and behaviors that define the culture. Well, as above, so below is obviously a, a great metaphysical um, law, uh, and it seems that it's a law that's valid across the board. 
uh, as above, so below. Um, and so many parents, um, where it all starts, where the culture and values start, are guilty of do as I say, not as I do. Um, do you have any words of advice for how to best address this little glitch in human behavior? Well, I think we have a, we talk about in the book about how people are not really born with an accountability gene, that it is something that gets developed over time. And it's a lot easier to start learning about accountability when you're young in the safety of your own home by, from your parents that that love you rather than trying to learn it the first time when you, let's say, for example, you get out of college and it's your first job and you've never been held accountable. It's going to be really difficult for that person to be successful in, in a role because they've never maybe gotten feedback. They've never had to change the way they behave because it's, it's not acceptable in the, in the circumstances. And you think about as children, we learn from our parents, we have lessons. I always like to tell a story about um, taking home some flowers to my mother. And my mom was thought they were absolutely beautiful, but she wondered where they came from. So she said, Julie, where'd the flowers come from? And I said, Mrs. Puckett's front yard. That was our neighbor. And mom said, I mean, I was little, I was probably five or four, something like that. And mom said, you know, you can't take flowers from someone else's yard. They don't belong to you. We need to go to Miss Puckett and apologize and tell her what happened. Well, needless to say, I was completely horrified. But thankfully, mom went with me to Miss Puckett to apologize. But I think the parent being accountable was what was really important there to begin with. So, so it sounds very much like uh, telling the truth under all circumstances is a major factor in being accountable. It's a bit like Don Miguel Ruiz's Four Agreements, you know, be impeccable with your word. Well, and I think I think truth-telling is a huge part of it because especially with the social media world that we live in today, the truth invariably is going to come out. So... As you try to hide the truth, the more likely scenario is it's going to come out. And doesn't it look much better if you own up to the truth to begin with rather than waiting and then having to own up to it later after, you know, a lifetime mm-hmm. of fibs and beyond the way? I mean, Lance Armstrong is a pretty good example of how that can turn out really badly. So what is the link between accountability and success? In, in our experience, the, the companies which emphasize accountability as part of their culture are likely to be much more successful than the companies that don't. We, we noticed this time and time again with the companies that, that we worked with in virtually anywhere that we happen to be working around the world, didn't matter whether it was Asia or the U.S. or Europe or, or wherever, if the, if the company had accountability as one of its watchwords, as one of its uh, <clears throat> cultural imperatives, then in our experience, that, that company was likely to be much more successful. And they're more successful because they create the kind of environment where good things happen. Like you can rely on people to do what they say they're going to do. 
You can rely on people to give honest feedback because giving and receiving feedback is an absolutely critical part, fundamental part of, of creating any kind of a culture, whether it's family or business or, or, or whatever. So our experience says emphasize accountability and that leads to a more successful organization. I think if you go back to what you were talking to uh, about blame earlier, Miriam, mm-hmm. that if we don't have a culture of blame, but we have a culture of accountability, then when mistakes happen, whoever sees the mistake is going to point it out and bring it to light, knowing that it's going to get resolved as opposed to there's going to be a witch hunt to see who's to blame. So that's another really good thing that leads to a more successful organization with accountability. Too often you see, uh, really, it, it is a witch hunt, looking for the person to blame. But then when you find the person that you blamed, you don't really solve the problem. You, you've gotten it out of your system. You blame someone. I mean, just look at the media. They, they, it's like a, a feeding frenzy when someone does something wrong instead of actually trying to solve the underlying issues. And that is what is so really revolutionary about this approach of a culture with accountability. Do you think you're making inroads? Who do you think would benefit most from your book? I think it, I don't think it matters whether you're talking about individuals or whether you're talking about families or businesses or churches or sports teams or Whatever I think, any any organization, any group of people, if you can create a, an accountable environment, everything becomes much more easy. Everything becomes much more straightforward, and you're going to be much more successful as as a result. So, does your book show how to do that? It does indeed. Um, funny, I should ask. <laughs> <laughs> funny, you should ask. There, there is a, a four step process. In defined in the book, which allows allows uh, individuals or organizations to establish uh, an accountability based culture, and uh, it's it's not easy, but it's it's straightforward, and it's it's easy to understand. Um, there are four straightforward steps, and. Uh, if, if we have time, we can go through those now. Unfortunately, or- we don't. No, we are. <laughs> we're coming to the bottom of the hour. And um, uh, uh, do you have one quick last thought for our listeners? I think one thing that I would say is we've written the book to be a very practical guide to how to install a culture of accountability. It's a quick one-and-a-half, two-hour read at the most, designed to really be a handbook for people. Um, And with lots of examples of how people have done things right and wrong that really gives people guidance, they could pick this up as a as a tool and have their whole toolkit there about how to, how to go forward. That is great. Well, Julie Miller and Brian Bedford, thank you so much for being with us. Their book is called Culture Without Accountability and their website, MillerBedford.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The best of the holistic, spiritual, and conscious world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Have you bought into the idea that you have to work hard for your money, that business is hard, 
I will share some dynamic access consciousness tools to get you out of your own way so you can create a business that actually succeeds. Join me, Simone Millicers, on the Joy of Business at 4 p.m. Mondays Eastern. Being a radio host on IOM FM allows you to build your show on a rich platform with the power of the Internet to fulfill your outreach goals and connect with a very specialized and global online audience, unlimited by time and distance. Om Times Radio will provide you with web relevance, a recognizable conscious brand, and with the standard of excellence that has accompanied every single Om Times endeavor. Host your show with Om Times Radio Network. The number one reason girls drop out of school in sub-Saharan Africa is lack of access to feminine hygiene products. The Pads for School Girls Project, an outreach of Humanity Healing International, is changing this paradigm by setting up sewing programs at schools, teaching girls a vocational skill, while producing the reusable pads that help keep them attending classes. The girls pay it forward by making and giving pad kits to other girls in need. To learn more, visit HumanityHealing.org. Humanity Healing is where your heart is. If you've ever said, I do, I do want it all. I do want happiness. I do want love. And I do desire the happily ever after fairy tale life. Then this show is for you. Join me, Dean Nicole Brandon, for my internationally acclaimed show, Bridal Talk Radio, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, where I'll bring you the top experts in the fields of communication, money, relationships, finance, Pleasure, play, travel, sexuality, parenting, real estate, adventure, comfort, care, passion, and love. Free your mind. Expand your soul. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. And we are back with our next guest, Karen Curry-Parker. Karen is a number one best-selling author, human design specialist, trainer, and professional speaker. She has been a high-performance life and business coach for more than 20 years and has coached over 6,000 people. Her work has been featured on Fox News, Bloomberg, Business Week, CBS, ABC, and more. And her books include Understanding Human Design, The New Science of Astrology, Discover Who You Really Are, Inside the Body of God, 13 Strategies for Thriving in a New World, and No Mistakes, How You Can Change Adversity into Abundance. Well, we could all use a bit of that, Karen. Welcome. Thank you, Miriam. Nice to be here. (laughs) Now, I met Karen at the International New Age Trade Show, and she did this computerized printout for me that I found surprisingly um, insightful. Karen, tell us what human design is. How do you come up with these printouts and interpretations? (laughs) Human design is a synthesis of Eastern and Western astrology, the Chinese I Ching, the chakra system, Kabbalah, and quantum physics. So um, we use the computer programs, thank God, because we used to do this by hand. And basically, just like with astrology, we plug in your birth data, and it spits out the chart like we looked at it at the conference. This chart basically is a map of how you're hardwired. So it shows you your life purpose, how you use energy, your strategy for making decisions, your best way to work, 
what you need to do to create the things that you long to create in your life. We have a myth, I think, that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to creating whatever you want to create in your life. And what, what this map shows you is that there is no one-size-fits-all. There's only your way, and it helps you really discover your way to create exactly what you want in your life. Now, the term human design, does that imply that we are, in fact, designed? Well, that's a great question. Um, I Personally, you know, this is one of those questions I'd say you certainly have to answer what feels correct for you. But I do absolutely think that there is a deliberate design. You know, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've done, you know, we've run over 25,000 charts in the last 15 years through my business. And I'll tell you that I have yet to find a chart that is completely random what I see in every chart is there's a very specific initiative for every single human on the planet. We're all here for a reason. We all have a purpose. And I just can't help but believe at this point in time that there is a little bit of deliberateness in this creative process that we're involved in. Now, how does human design differ from either astrology or, or say, the Briggs-Meyer personality types? <laughs> um well, you know, astrology is a great tool for telling you how you who you are. It also is a really, I think, a nice predictive tool. Um, and certainly Myers-Briggs is a wonderful assessment tool. In fact, I've used it for many years in my coaching practice. What human design does that's a little bit different than both of those is it really gives you a map for how you're hardwired. So if you think about if you've ever built a house or you've added onto your house, you know, when you do the electrical part, you actually have a map or a blueprint for how the house is wired. The human design chart is really a map or a blueprint for how you're wired. And astrology can certainly, uh, you know, give you some of that information. Certainly Myers-Briggs can also give you another part of the information. But human design really goes a lot deeper. And it really brings out a whole lot more about how you operate, not just who you are. Hmm. Um, I believe you describe five main types. There are there are there are five main types: the manifester, the manifesting generator, the generator, the projector, and the reflector. And each one of those types has a different role in life. Manifestors are here to initiate. Generators and manifesting generators are here to work. Projectors are here to manage everybody else, and reflectors are sort of the barometers that indicate the health of the people around them. So the beautiful part about understanding the five types that we see, and this is so powerful. Is what we one of the biggest things we learned from the five types is not everybody is here to work in the traditional way that we think of as work, and so again going back to this whole idea that there's a one size fit, fits all model approach to making money or creating success. What we see with human design is that the way in which each one of us goes about creating that success is going to be different, and not everybody's going to is designed to create success from working, and certainly not from working harder. So do you find that some types predominate? The the manifestor, manifesting generators and the generators are the predominant. So about 70% of us are actually designed to find the right work and do the right work. 30% of us are not designed to work in the traditional way that we think of as work. So, yeah. Um, when you say not to work in the traditional way, how do they work? Well, it, you know, the manifester can kind of do pretty much whatever they want to do. So that's about 8% of the population. They really, truly can just go out and make things happen. The projectors, who are about 20% of the population, they don't have what we call sustainable workforce energy. So Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, is not necessarily the best way for them to work. So for them, they really have to find a style of generating support or creating a revenue stream 
that maybe doesn't involve them actually working. So this is a, and actually you'll see this a lot in what I call the light worker community or in the coaching community. These are people who are designed, projectors are designed to, to guide and direct other people. So a lot of times they'll go into more non-traditional fields like coaching or massage therapy or even intuitive work. And it's in that style of working that they're managing and guiding other people. And oftentimes, hopefully, if their businesses are doing well, they can structure their business so that they're not constantly working to generate their, their income and that they can actually learn to leverage who they are or what they know rather than actually physically going out and working. So with all of these profiles that you've done, have you had a feedback from clients saying that knowing their type um, was useful and, and kind of gave them insight into changing their lives? I, I will say that I have had nothing but positive feedback from people, except for one time we did a chart and the person said, oh, this is terrible and so wrong. And we actually had the wrong birth date on the chart. So, <laughs> um, I would say consistently the thing that people tell me the most is, number one, they finally understand why they are the way that they are once they understand their human design. And number two, and this is the one that always moves me so deeply, is people tell me all the time, I feel like for the first time in my life, I've been seen. That secret part of myself that I hoped was true, that I hoped had a purpose and a direction and a meaning, you see that in the chart. And I just, I feel so validated. And you know, I love that people say that. And at the same time, it always breaks my heart that sometimes people, I just did a reading last week for a woman who was 76 years old who said that to me. And she literally had been here for 76 years and had never felt like anybody had really seen who she was. So to me, that's, that's, really beautiful and I think so validating for people that their their magnificence and the brilliance that they hope is true about themselves actually usually shows up in the chart and they get that validation that they really are here for a reason and they are really unique and truly beautiful. Do you think there's something about this time that makes human design more important? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think we're in a time of massive shift. I think personally, you know, emergence of huge abundance and possibility for people. And I think as we continue to shift, you know, the energy for authenticity and abundance is really crucial for us to manifest and form on the planet. You know, people often say to me, well, you know, what's what's the best thing that I can do? How can I make a difference in the world? You know, I think the greatest gift that you can give the world is you being you, you being the fullest expression of yourself as yourself. You know, if you put together a puzzle the puzzle is only going to be as beautiful as the sum total of the pieces. If you're not taking your place in the human puzzle, in the divine puzzle and tapestry of who we are, and you're trying to be something you're not, or you're trying to squeeze yourself into a space where you don't belong, or, or maybe you've torn off some of your pieces so you'll fit in the right place that's not really correct for you, you know, the only thing that happens is you affect deeply the, the sum total of the beauty of that puzzle. You, you will be a beautiful gift to the world and the world will come together the way it needs to be right now as we shift and evolve if you show up as, who, as the person I think you're designed to be, fulfilling your life purpose and most importantly, stepping into your joy and stepping into your abundance so that that energy that you're carrying, that energy of abundance that is you can add to the collective energy of abundance as we shift and change this planet and move ourselves towards an era of sustainable peace and sustainable resources for everyone. I think my favorite Oscar Wilde quote is, be yourself, everyone else is taken. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, you speaking of sustainability, you have a nonprofit business that you started with your husband. Tell us about that. Well, what we're doing right now is we have a, a business incubator. We're working primarily with single moms, but we're we have a great plan for expansion where we're helping them develop the business skills necessary for them to be able to fully express their creative capacity in a way that's sustainable. And uh, we're doing this by creating um, affordable housing situations for them and also working in a mentorship capacity to teach them how to create their own businesses and do it in a way that's balanced and harmonious and hopefully break some of the cycles of poverty so that not only will they change their own personal situation, but you know create opportunities for their children and and hopefully their children's children as we go forth. So, what gave you the idea for that? Uh, truthfully, I was a full-time single mom for 14 years. I raised four kids by myself and and took care of them financially by myself. And um, it was a very incredible journey. And um, it was really important to me that I create those opportunities for other women behind me. It, you know, I learned a lot, and it was very challenging. It was also incredibly empowering, and um, and I really didn't have the resources, didn't know how to do it the way I wanted to do it, and I really wanted to create that and give that back to women who are still raising up their children. So that was one of the many motivations. <laughs> so. uh, Karen, is there a website for this? What's it called, this this organization? We don't have a website. The, that's coming. <laughs> so mm-hmm. but thank you for that, for that suggestion. Um the, the name of the organization is Sustainability 2027. And uh, as I said, currently we're working on a project where we are developing an old power station and creating a business incubator within the power station and and uh, low-income housing in, mixed in with other kinds of housing because we have, my husband and I, he's, a, he's an urban planner, we really believe that segregating people into clumps based on income really doesn't benefit anybody. So yeah. we are really... And, <laughs> and Karen, what, what is uh, the website for your book? The website for my book is understandinghumandesign.com. Great. Understanding Human Design uh, is the name of your book. That's correct, and also <laughs> the name of the website. <laughs> so <laughs> people can contact you through there? Absolutely, and if they go to the site, they can also get their free human design chart and a little report that goes with it because you're going to want to know what it means because it's, it's kind of funny looking. <laughs> so oh, fun! understandinghumandesign.com. Great. Well, Karen Curry-Parker, thank you so much for being with us and telling us all about it. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Bringing a more conscious lifestyle to your world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Do you want to be a better communicator? Do you want to better connect with the important people in your life? Do you want to enrich your relationships? If so, join me, Matthew Cooper, on the Positive Control System Show every Wednesday evening at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on OM Times Radio. I'll meet you there. Host your show on IOM FM, the radio network of OM Times Media one of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of Ohm Times. Hosting a show on IOM FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. Are you trying to get from point A to point B and need a little advice? 
Connect with the counselors at Om Times Advisors. Whether you're looking for a life coach or a spiritual intuitive, the advisors participating at advisors.omtimes.com were carefully chosen based on their gifts, skills, and professionalism. Om Times Advisors, connecting you with the best advisors in the business. Hi, this is Sylvia Henderson, Intuitive Life Coach and Energy Healer. Are you ready to elevate and rise way above your normal? Be sure to listen to my show, Intuitive Transformations, on Own Times Radio, Sunday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern. Get the inspiration you need to transform your life. Conscious Media for Conscious Minds, Own Times. And welcome back. We have our guest, Mark Bosnian, with us. Um, Bosnian. Mark is an award-winning singer-songwriter, and he's the author of Sing Free Now, Three Steps to Power, Passion, and Confidence. And he also created the Sing Free Now method of voice transformation. He has performed all over the world, and he was voted into the Oregon Music Hall of Fame in 2001. A veteran voice teacher and widely recognized expert in the field of vocal performance, Mark teaches people of all ages and experience levels to sing with power and confidence, including six-year-olds to folks in their 70s, professional musicians, actors, public speakers, shower singers, karaoke warriors, choir singers, ah, Mark, we have to talk, and those who thought they were tone deaf. His website is singfreenow.com, and I am delighted to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Miriam. I'm delighted to be on the show. Oh, Mark, tell us what the number one myth about voice and singing is. Well, in all my experience talking with folks about singing, the first thing out of their mouth many times is, well, I didn't get a good voice. As if when you're born, there's one line to be in to get a good voice and the other line for all of the rest of us. So I think that myth is that you're either born with a good voice or you're not. It's it's not an activity that can be learned to do better. It's just either naturally great or not. And I love to go around dispelling that. That's a big part of my work. And but I, surely but, some people have naturally great voices. Well, they do. But... I'm a professional singer who I feel was born with an average voice like everyone else. Hmm. And, and I am not an advocate as much of natural talent being the deciding factor in whether you play a sport better or whether you sing. To me, it's more how much desire you have to do an activity. And I see that over and over in my coaching of people, of folks who weren't born with an astounding vocal sound, but they really want to do this, and they learn how to do it, and they have a great time doing it. Well, I know a lot of people are afraid to sing in public, my husband included. Um, why, why do you think that is? Uh, I really believe it's because of how much information we all get about each other from the human voice, whether it's singing or speaking, we make decisions about how educated somebody is, how intelligent they are, uh, even how much money they probably make. We make all of these guesses based on someone's voice. Some of it is, is the actual sound of the voice and a lot of it is the nonverbal stuff that goes along with singing and speaking. And I think because we all know this, we're all afraid that folks are going to find out that we are not 
um, that we're faking it somehow. I think we're afraid that to, to do what I like to call opening the kimono, which is to let out who we are through our voice because we're afraid people aren't going to think we're good enough. That's really interesting. I, I know in my husband's case, um, he sang as a boy in choir, but then later on when his voice changed, everybody asked him to please shut up. And so he really had this almost inferiority complex about his voice. Um, freeing up your voice has so many deeper levels of meaning. I'm wondering, if have you seen transformations in people that you've taught beyond just the, the, the improvement in their singing voice? That is a phenomenal question because that's one of the things that I love to sneak in the coaching that I do. And then eventually it's not something we're sneaking in. It's something people realize. I've had literally thousands of people tell me over the 29 years I've been doing this, wow, this has given me confidence in other aspects of my life that I never expected. I, I had a woman once tell me, I was always the wallflower um, silent person in business meetings at my corporation. I never, I never uh, disagreed with anybody. I never really offered an opinion. I pretty much just sat in on meetings. And as I learned to use my voice with confidence, I found myself speaking up and actually disagreeing. She said it was really kind of strange. It was like I was observing this and going, oh, and other people were looking at me like, wow, where'd that come from? <laughs> but in, in a great way going, it is wonderful to finally meet you and to hear who you are and hear your opinion and hear you share yourself through your voice. And that's really what our voice does for us. Mm. What happens to the voice with age? Can you really improve the voices of older people? Absolutely. Um, I have a 91-year-old gentleman getting ready to start taking a class for me, and I'm really excited because he'll be the oldest guy I've had. But I've had lots of, of uh, folks in their 50s, 60s, and 70s come and study with me, and many of them have the misconception that this is like being an Olympic swimmer in that you peak in your early 20s and then everything uh, after that is downhill, which is really true a lot in a lot of sports. Hmm. But in singing, it's not at all. Um, your, your throat has a lot to do with amplifying the sound that your vocal cords make. And the human throat gets bigger around um, by small amounts all the way up until your mid-40s. So often in the opera world, which is very demanding on the voice, they won't give you the meaty roles until you're in your mid-40s because your instrument hasn't developed the strength and the size and if you learn how to use your, quote, equipment, unquote, which is a big part of what I teach, when you learn how to use the parts of the body that are involved in breathing and making sound and you know how to maintain them, how to troubleshoot, how to adjust, your voice really doesn't have to change at all until mid to late 60s. And then it doesn't have to change very much at all from then until the day you die. I've actually seen some great singers in their late 80s who have just blown me away with how great they sound. So it's not about just being older. It's mostly for folks about not knowing how to, how to work the voice. You know, you see older folks um, 
who are phenomenally young and others who are much younger and look much older. So I guess the voice is just like any other part of your anatomy. You can either keep it fresh and young and vibrant <laughs> or let it go to pot. Well, well put. I just got <laughs> I just got back from a high school reunion of mine, and I won't tell you what year it was, but <laughs> there were such a varied um, uh, way that people in my class aged, and you're hitting it right on the head. And I've had so many people say, "Well, I hear all these rock star folks, and you know, as they get older, they can't sing. It must just be a function of age." And it's not. It is how you treat your body, and also just genetically what you were born with and how you're aging in general. But a lot of times when people have voice trouble, it's really worth looking at external factors like diet and sleep and drug and alcohol abuse and all the things that can beat up a body because your vocal cords are actually muscles. Anything that affects muscles in your body, which is just about everything, is going to affect your voice. Mm. Well, there's that classic whiskey baritone voice that a lot just, of women have actually just talking to somebody about that as if drinking whiskey would be a good thing to develop something <laughs> like that and it really is not such a great thing <laughs> so um why why should people try to transform their voice if they're not really uh, planning on a singing career uh i think there's a lot of reasons your voice is really a whole lot like a combination of your website, your business card, your Facebook page, your handshake, it it absolutely represents who you are because of what I talked about earlier. There is so much information about you coming through your voice. And when I listen on the radio to people being interviewed a lot and I hear voices that sound like this and they come out and say, well, for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about uh, this very important subject. I already can feel my nervous system going, I don't want to work that hard to listen to that voice. And, and then there are these young girls that they, they sound like cookie cutters and they speak, uh, you know, with, with the cords on their neck standing out and, and yes. squeaky and it just yes. sets my teeth on edge. Yes. So, so the, the short answer to why someone would want to work on transforming their voice and really it's more returning it back to where it was when you were born because all of us are born with a good voice, we tend to just start hiding it and shutting it down as we get older. The real reason to do that is you can communicate more effectively as a human being in all areas of your life. Whether you're asking your boss for a raise or asking someone out on a date, telling a joke, um, just conversing with folks, with your friends, if it's hard for you to communicate because the delivery system, your voice isn't working very well, People have to work harder just to be around you to hear you speak or sing. So it so, sounds like part of the things that you work on are not just the vocal apparatus, but also your mental attitude. I do. Um, the, you mentioned the subtitle of my book, Three Steps to Power, Passion, and Confidence. I really look at there's three steps to transforming the voice. The first one is all the mechanics stuff, breathing, how to project, how to, how to really tap into your power. The second one is a big one. It's the artistry of what you do with your voice. 
how to how to develop and enhance your own style, how to put emotion in your singing or speaking by using dynamics. And then the third piece is the stage presence piece, how to look comfortable when you are using your voice in public, how to look like you own the stage, even if inside you are petrified. There are a lot of tips and secrets about how not to show that to where people go, oh, I don't have to worry about this singer or speaker. I can tell they feel really comfortable in their own skin, and I'm looking forward to the journey they're going to take me on with their voice. Fascinating. Mark, uh, tell us again uh, your website. Website is www.singfreenow.com. Mark Bosnian, Sing Free Now. Well, I'm so delighted that you're here in Portland. We're going to have to get together when we're off the air. I would love that. (laughs) I would. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mark. It was such a pleasure for me, Miriam. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to us today. Please visit visit our website, ncreview.com. You can see our magazine there and participate with your own reviews. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight. For New Consciousness Review, goodbye.